Welcome to this Radio Goes to the Movies edition of Forthright Radio for May 12, 2023. One of the largest army bases in the U.S. is no longer named for a Confederate general, John B. Hood, but officially renamed Fort Cavazos after Mexican-American four-star general Richard E. Cavazos. This renaming came after then-President Trump vetoed the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, which included the Base Renaming Commission. But Congress delivered its first and only veto override during his presidency by an overwhelming and all-too-rare bipartisan vote. There had also been a John B. Hood Junior High School in Dallas, Texas, which was renamed in 2016, and another John B. Hood Junior High School in Odessa, Texas, but it was renamed in 2015. In all, nine bases named for Confederate officers are being renamed to, in the words of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, quote, commemorate the best of the Republic that we are all sworn to protect, end of quote. As a nation, we are in the throes of a re-examination of history. But whose history? And who gets to tell it? And how do we live today with various versions of our history that were memorialized in the past? And what role does art play in this process? Whose art? And how do we best evaluate and live with the impacts of different versions of history, and the potential harm and even re-traumatization that a particular version creates. These are among the questions addressed by the filmmakers of two documentaries that will be screening at the 2023 Mendocino Film Festival that we consider in today's program. First, we speak with Alan Snittow and Deborah Kaufman about their film, Town Destroyer. You may recall the furor over whether or not to destroy or cover up the 13 panels of the 1930s murals by popular front artist Victor Arnatoff, The Life of Washington, at San Francisco's George Washington High School. Snittow and Kaufman filmed students, parents, Native American activists, artists of different ethnicities, scholars, and museum directors, all against a background of vivid cinematography of the controversial panels. Then, in our second segment, we speak with Maria Nero about her documentary, The Art of Unwar, Krzysztof Wodyszko. The brilliant Polish artist. In the 1980s, he pioneered art projected onto buildings and monuments to resist apartheid, nuclear weapons, and most of all, war. We hope you can stay tuned for that in our second segment. Alan Snittow and Deborah Kaufman's films include the award winning Company Town, Between Two Worlds, Thirst, Secrets of Silicon Valley, and Blacks and Jews. Alan was a producer at the KTVU-TV News, the Bay Area Fox affiliate, for 12 years. Before that, he was an award-winning news director at KPFA. He has served on the boards of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, Film Arts Foundation, California Media Collaborative, Food and Water Watch, and much more. Deborah Kaufman founded and for 13 years was director of the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, the first and largest independent Jewish film showcase in the world. She's been a board member of the California Council for the Humanities, the New Israel Fund, and Amnesty International USA. 
She's been a consultant, programmer, lecturer, and activist with a variety of human rights, multicultural, and media arts organizations. We spoke with Deborah and Allen on May 8, 2023, via Skype. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Deborah Kaufman and Alan Snittow. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Your film, Town Destroyer, comes at a time of tremendous cultural ferment in the United States when the rethinking of the history of the traumas from the European slave trade and the violent conquest of the Americas are replacing the mythological versions of history that have been promulgated since the founding of our republic. In Oakland on May 6th, California's Reparation Task Force voted to approve recommendations on how the state can compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. And of course, there is resistance sadly sometimes violent, to the re-examination of this history. Town Destroyer chronicles one story of this process in San Francisco involving questions of the nature and purpose of art, when and how and for whom art is created, and who decides whether the benefits of a work of art outweigh any discomfort or pain that it elicits, and what mechanisms does our society have in addressing these issues. So let's begin with setting the context of your film, beginning with the incredible art at San Francisco's George Washington High School and how that relates to the title of your film, Town Destroyer. In 1936, a Russian immigrant to the United States named Viktor Arnatov was asked to produce a series of 13 murals, a series about the life of George Washington for the then-being-built George Washington High School in San Francisco. The school became a sort of temple of art. There's murals all over the place and sculptures. And the series of murals involved a considerable amount of research that Arnatov did. He was close to or a member of the Communist Party during that period of time. And so he wanted to tell an alternative history. And that alternative history showed George Washington as a slave owner. And also Washington as somebody who pointed the nation west to taking over the lands of Native people, Native nations. And it showed Washington as a surveyor, which was his initial job. And surveying for Native people in the United States meant the people who came through to try to claim their land by putting it in parcels so that it could be chopped up and given to various settlers. This was something that was quite extraordinary at the time. But since that time, of course, there's been a reevaluation of what can be said by whom and how for these murals and who is looking at the murals. It's become a complicated battle over them because people may now look at these murals as being a painful repeating of a history that they don't want to look back on. They don't want to look at themselves as victims. They don't want to see a full-length, full-size corpse at eye level in the middle of the school of a native person face down dead, killed by settlers. These are real concerns that were raised to the school board in San Francisco, asking them to cover up or even paint over the murals. The fight over the murals really was unique in that they're in a school and young people, young adults, it's a high school, have to 
walk by these murals every day. So parents and some community organizations and some students talk to the public and to us about the feelings of trauma that were triggered looking at these images every day, while other people in the community were saying it was vitally important to face this history because the only way to fight structural racism is to confront it. So the battle was engaged in 2019 at the Board of Supervisors, and we started filming them before COVID. And throughout the several years of the lockdown and then being able to get out, we were able to interview people all around the country, mostly artists and curators at museums, Native Americans, African Americans, and others who had really interesting and complicated thoughts about the challenges of dealing with this kind of historical art and what do you do with representations and symbols of a brutal American past. And one of those artists was Dewey Crumpler, and he is especially central to the situation in that he is an artist who was involved with the Black Power reaction to the murals in the late 1960s, as well as having been inspired by the siege of Alcatraz Island in 1969, which he said was heroic. And he painted murals at the high school in response. Dewey is a wonderful artist based in Oakland. He was a professor at the San Francisco Art Institute. His art is both abstract and representational and political and gorgeous, the stuff that he's doing now. But as a really young man at 21 years old or so, he was asked by the black students at George Washington High School to paint a mural in response to the Arnitoff murals. The students at that time were involved in the black power movement and were connected to the Panthers, and they didn't want to see themselves as victims. They wanted to see resistance. In fact, they wanted in some ways murals about slavery to show more violence of uprising against the system. Eventually, after a number of years, it was agreed that Dewey should do these murals. And the murals show the heroes of Asian American, Latino, and the black communities all breaking the chains that bind people of color in the United States. They're actually quite spectacular and beautiful in their own right, and they're right next door to where the Arnitoff murals are. His murals, it's three very large wall panels next to the Arnitoff murals, suggest that art can and should be reinterpreted, evaluated, and responded to, and that art can be an inspiration even when it's painful to look at. And there's been so much controversy over art throughout the centuries, and we think that Arnitoff would probably be very happy that there's people are paying attention to his murals today. We spoke to his grandson who was like, oh, Arnitov would be delighted that there's controversy. He wouldn't want them painted over, but that people are, are noticing them. We talked to many alumni of this school who actually didn't even remember them. Kids can sometimes just be oblivious to what's around them. And the fact that people are paying attention now, we think is great. Before we go on, I must tell you how appreciative I am of the cinematography in this film, Town Destroyer. Photographing art is an art in itself and very, very difficult. Although I haven't seen the originals with which to knowledgeably compare, I can say that the reproduction of not just the Arnitoff murals, but the athletic bas-relief is just inspiring. It makes me regret the state of our nation when we have these examples from one of the most difficult periods economically in our history with this 
incredible creative period as well. Thank you for noticing. Arnatoff was being paid by the New Deal legislation to pay artists to make art throughout the country during the Depression. And all of the art in the school is from that New Deal era of Franklin Roosevelt. Generally, not 100% of the time, these artists were progressives and were doing really forward-thinking works of art. They were from all kinds of backgrounds, some of whom became famous, like Philip Gustin, who's got a huge life retrospective right now at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., and also lesser-known artists that included the man who made the freeze out on the football field. That was Sergeant Johnson, Johnson, an African-American artist, and artists who did other murals within the library at the school and elsewhere in the school. The school is virtually a temple of New Deal art. But societies that are involved with the protection of these murals that are at post offices and public buildings around the country, and people are only now understanding the complexity of these murals, which in some cases include stereotyped images that are offensive to people. And how do we deal with these works of art that are part of the American story that offend some people? This is something that needs consideration. I mean, this is why we made the film. All voices need to be heard. We've been told since the film premiered in October that there's a sense of relief that we were including a multiplicity of voices that often don't get heard. And that what is necessary at this time in America is for people to listen to each other and recognize the the variety of truths that are sometimes in conflict with each other, but to recognize that there are multiple truths truths. As a matter of fact, you include Robin D.G. Kelly, a UCLA history professor. He says, It's not about choosing a side. We are taught that there are two sides to every story. There's not two sides. There are multiple perspectives. The truth of the matter is that no one person can tell the story. No one group could tell a story. Every story that we tell is incomplete. One of the things that we tried to do with the film was to what a native scholar told us was an approach used in Indian reconciliation ceremony, which is to break the binary, to make it so that it's not either or one way or the other, but that you can look deeper, that you can actually try to provide some kind of way of different views being actually able to see one another. And so that became our method in the film. And we were helped greatly by our wonderful executive producer, Peggy Berryhill, who's Muskogee, who gave us her perspective on various cuts of the film and gave us context during the process. And one of the things that was very important to her and to us was to show both the history of genocide and the enormity of that process, as well also as the idea of survival, that Native people in the country are a growing population of people who are sensing their history, proud of it, and redeeming it. And so we tried to actually deal with both of these sides, one, the amazing WPA art and what it meant in its time, and also the responses of some, but certainly not all, Native people in San Francisco wanting no longer to look at the particular history in that art. Among the indigenous people that you interview is Barbara Mumby of Powhatan, Shawnee, Kankomaidu ancestry. And she's on the San Francisco Art Commission. She said, We were changing the narrative. 
We're not going to stand for imagery that perpetuates the idea that we're defeated. We will probably likely have this conversation for another couple of decades until there is something more permanent done to address it. And Jessica Young, Seneca Cayuga of New College in Florida, added, What we do with these murals, what we do with these names, what we do with these institutions needs to be part of a longer process of restitution, of reparations, of understanding how we can be better relatives to each other. Two things of note in that, recognizing this is process, this is ongoing, but also the radical concept that we are relatives, and that's posited against our current situation in which it's us versus them. So I have two questions. Given what's going on in Florida with the takeover of the board of New College, do you have any updates on Jessica Young's situation? Then if you have any comments about that point of view that those two women present. Jessica's concern at what's been going on at New College in Florida, DeSantis methods of taking over public institutions, fighting Disney, etc., in order to push through an agenda that is beyond conservative, is likely going to affect her position there. But she's still there. And when the film showed at the Sarasota Film Festival, which is where the new college is located, she went and spoke. And the audience was very appreciative of the film and of her own academic life at the school. The fight continues. It's not over there. But interestingly, I think what should be said is that DeSantis and people uh, with him in Florida are using some of the same arguments that the parents in San Francisco are using about protecting children. And I think that this has come out in many of the discussions that we've had after the film with, with audiences who are concerned about this argument about protecting the children from trauma rather than how do you empower kids to challenge the system and really face and fight against structural racism. It's a deep problem and it has to be taken on forcefully because we can't use the idea of one child being hurt as an excuse to ban all books about the LGBT community or to ban Toni Morrison and books like Art Spiegelman's Mouse because somebody's going to feel traumatized by learning about the histories of oppression and racism. Towards that end, Paul Chot Smith, who is of the Comanche Nation, he is the museum curator at the National Museum of the American Indian. And among the many things he says is... I think if people assert something is triggering, if they feel like they are personally hurt by presentation or an image, you can't debate that. You have to accept that that's how that individual feels. At some point, the intentions of the artist don't matter. It's about how it's received. It's in the world. And I think the idea of it being something to teach, it's like the idea of nuance. It's sort of a quaint notion now. I suppose there's a lot to unpack in what he says throughout. He's an amazing uh, thinker and writer. And one of the things that we generally try to deal with in this is how do you deal with trauma? There's a sort of whole section of how do you think about it? How do you react to it? Do you make it so that a single person's trauma is enough to eradicate some historic work, which is one of the arguments that's been used in San Francisco? If even one child is hurt by a piece of art, it should not exist. 
imagine how everyone can veto everyone else's desires based on the DeSantis example. He's a man who deals with paradoxes all the time. He deals with questions of you're not able to define exactly how a work of art is going to affect people. You can't question how it affects them because the artist loses control. And that is, in fact, a great thing about a piece of art, that, in fact, the artist doesn't know what its effect is going to be. And so often works of art go completely unappreciated until after the artist is dead. So this is one of the great things about a work of art, but it is also something that creates such an unpredictable quality. Once you start seeing, for example, these controversial works in the framework of a Native person looking at a piece of art, you start seeing all over California, for example, images in every public building of Junipero Serra patting the head of a little native child. It's a constant, racist, condescending, humiliating vision of what native life and native people are alike. And it is all over the place. This is work that at the time people were proud of and they sort of identified with the good way that the native people were treated in California, which was in virtually all the histories that we've read the worst genocidal campaign in the United States history, in which, as Barbara Mumby says in the course of the film, our school system doesn't talk about the brutality of it. Children are only taught about the mission system as being a place of refuge, a place to save Native people, to show them the word of God. It doesn't tell you the actual truth of what happened in the mission system, the history that was so devastating to Indigenous people. We don't learn about the state-sanctioned militias that were sent throughout California to actually hunt down Native people and sell their scalps for $5. California had the most Native people and nations in the country, and the death toll here was beyond belief and accounting. There's actually a, a book called American Genocide by Benjamin Madley describes this history. How does a work, a single piece of art, how does it echo into the future? And can its echo in the future be appreciated as being something that was of its time? Or does it have to be something which has to live up to our current way of thinking about it? And which pieces of art, how many Junipero Serra pieces of art need to be on display in public buildings? Or can we take a lot of those things down, create some museum somewhere of Junipero Serra so that Native people are not constantly looking at these humiliating visions of themselves? You feature in Town Destroyer the movement by Indigenous people primarily to have one such statue, early days, a pioneer monument by Frank Happersberger, which was installed in Civic Plaza in 1894. And it juxtaposes this piece of art that does get removed versus the Washington murals. What we're trying to do in the film is compare and contrast these two different works, one of which is Arnatov, a work of art by an artist who studied and painted with Diego Rivera and was well-known and respected in the region, versus another whose work is more comparable to Confederates' monuments that are being taken down that were often not individual sculptures, but mass-produced in order to make a point of propaganda about white supremacy. So we're providing nuance. 
not all works that are in the public domain out there are the same. That a monument of Hunapera Serra is not the same as a painting in which he's featured critically. So, and you really have to look at these things. So when he talks about nuance being a quaint idea, it raises the question about education in general and what kids are being taught and how the school system is failing in a way to provide kids resources to think about history and think about art and compare and contrast these kinds of things. That's the sad element of the film is that the school board is arguing about these symbolic representations and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and hours of time on these things rather than actually dealing with the real thing which is the problems in education and how do we study the past? What do we learn from the past and how do we make progress and go forward? One thing about the film that we hope to have is people looking again at historic figures, including George Washington. When we talk about the intention versus the impact, it's important when you're looking at the early days monument as being something which was a representation of a white supremacist view that was unchallenged in the 1890s. One of the other aspects that we wanted to get across was something that we didn't know before we started this film. When George Washington was General George Washington during the Revolutionary War, he ordered General Sullivan to attack British forces and their native allies in the Iroquois areas of northern New York State after a number of attacks on pro-patriot, as it was called, towns and cities. And so you had very bloody warfare going there. And Sullivan was ordered by Washington to go up there and destroy Iroquois villages and towns, destroy their crops, disperse their people. This would be a war crime in our current way of thinking about things, driving civilians toward enemy lines. The Seneca called Washington after this destruction of Iroquois villages and people up in that area, called him Town Destroyer. And it was a name that he actually was proud of during parts of his life, even though I think at various points later on, he was considered somebody who wanted to negotiate with Native people. And we had, for example, at one of our screenings in Washington, we had a Mohawk man get up and say, that he liked the film very much, and he wanted to add that Washington was the first person to sign a treaty of peace with an Iroquois nation. And there was this other way of looking at Washington, even coming from a native person. It's fascinating for us how there are so many different sides to history and so many different ways of looking at things, so much of which is not included in our education, even about the founder of the country. You have incorporated in a very short time, it's only 55 minutes, a tremendous amount of information, both intellectual and visual and auditory. Kudos to the sound people on this as well. Will you be coming to the Medicino Film Festival? Yes, we're going to be there for the whole festival with our executive producer, Peggy Berrio. We love Mendocino. We're happy that people are getting a chance to see the film and discuss it, and that conversations have been really inspiring and provocative and exciting. So we're hoping to have those conversations with people who come to the festival in Mendocino. And we're also delighted that we'll be showing the film more and more in high schools. We'll be doing a screening at Mendocino High School during the Mendocino Film 
Film Festival. And I think in the next week or two, all the students at Fort Bragg High will have been given a chance to see the film and we'll be doing a, a Zoom discussion with them afterwards. And we're finding these discussions with high school students very exciting. And especially as we're finding a number of times that they're working on their own murals and trying to figure out what kind of vision of their own lives and of the current time to portray in their own work. That's a great thing. Very We're exciting. Exciting for very us. Very exciting. Deborah Kaufman and Alan Snittel, thank you very much for creating this film and for being our guests today on Radio Goes to the Movies. We very much appreciate it. Thanks, Joy. Thanks so much. We go now to Maria Nero's award-winning documentary, The Art of Unwar, about a radical interventionist artist, Krzysztof Wodiszko, who was born in Warsaw, Poland, two days before the uprising and destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto. Maria Nero is a New York City-based artist and award-winning filmmaker whose work has been broadcasted on television and screened in theaters, festivals, and museums worldwide. She's a member of New Day Films, a filmmaker-run distribution company providing social issue documentaries to educators founded by American Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, activist, and feminist Julia Reichert in 1971. She serves on the advisory board of More Art, a nonprofit organization that supports collaborations between professional artists and communities to create public art and educational programs that inspire social justice. We spoke with Maria Nero via Skype on May 2nd, 2023. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Maria Nero. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Maria, you directed, produced, and edited, as well as being the cinematographer and music supervisor of your inspiring film, The Art of Unwar, Christoph Wodischko. It chronicles the life and work of this amazing artist-activist, and I'm deeply grateful to you for introducing me to him. Would you please tell our listeners about his life? Because his origin story certainly must have had a great deal to do with what he's chosen to create throughout his long and productive life. One of the things that inspired me to make the film was learning about Christoph's background. He was born in Poland during World War II. In fact, it was right in the midst of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And so I thought it was ironic that an artist who had spent his entire life making works of art that touch upon critical social issues and that basically protests war would be born out of this movement that was protesting war, the Holocaust, basically. And so that really inspired me deeply. And also, I think his entire avoir, when I started to look into it, so much of it connected to addressing war. Of course, not all his works of art are about war. He also touches upon immigration, xenophobia, and all kinds of issues. But a lot of those issues are connected to war. So there were a lot of things that inspired me about him to want to make the film. But those things especially, I found very interesting. And I thought if I was going to make a documentary, which was going to take me many years to make, 
I would certainly have a lot to research, to study, to learn. When did you begin this project? I started filming his work at the end of 2012. That's when I met him in Union Square Park. I saw the Abraham Lincoln War Veteran Projection, which features the war veterans since the Vietnam Wars and their faces and hand gestures animate the Lincoln statue in Union Square. So that's where I met him. And my immediate reaction was to film this. I happened to have a camera. And then I kept going back and continued to film it because it was very hard to capture. You know, it was happening at night. I was just so taken by this work. I thought, let me capture this. It's quite historical that this is happening. And that's how my journey began. I thought, well, now I have all this footage. Let me make a short documentary, like a pocket doc that speaks specifically about this event. And I started meeting with him. We started having coffee and speaking. And the more I met with him and the more I learned about him, I thought this documentary should be longer And then long story short, after a year working on it, I thought I'm going to make a full feature length documentary because I thought his work was just so important. And I was just so taken by his avoir, was so rich with so many different important works that he had done throughout the world, traveling all over the world doing projections that actually began as slide projections and then evolved into 3D mapping projection where he actually animates these monuments. I had never been aware of either the artist or his work, and I just was so excited and stimulated. I'm glad you used the word animates the statues because that's what's spooky about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not every day that we see a statue speaking. It is haunting. There is this haunting element to it. Also, this idea of that we want to, like, today, there's so much concern with monuments, with the questionable ones, and so many monuments have been removed. I just think that Christoph takes it a step beyond where he shows us this is another approach of how you can deal with questionable monuments. He doesn't address Confederate monuments per se, but he does address the monument itself. And he finds a way, instead of just removing it, to deal with it, to make it useful so that they talk to us. I think that's brilliant. (laughs) I absolutely agree. And you were brilliant to begin filming as soon as you saw it. That is very fortuitous that those things came together like that. Some of the very earliest scenes in The Art of Unwar feature these powerful, moving superimpositions of voices and images of people talking onto the monumental statuary. Now, it's not uncommon these days to see projections of images on buildings at demonstrations and our consciousness around the power of these memorials and particularly memorials of imperialism and war. But he began experimenting with this as a medium decades ago. Did he create this? I mean, you demonstrate throughout the movie what an innovator he is. 
an incredibly creative person with a profound technological abilities. He combines his artistic vision with his deft understanding of technology. I began uh, public projections in Toronto in 1981. I projected on this building uh, just parts of a human body to turn them into bodily creatures, taking advantage of this bodily metaphor that is in neoclassic architecture, but also in modernist buildings as well. I simply helped those buildings to become bodies, a little bit turning the city into Brechtian theater. But it was very clear that they really resembled, to, in many ways, people who work in those buildings. Key turning point was when I saw a group of people who looked at this and started to laugh. The laughter was a revelation to me, because it's clear that they realized that there is something in those buildings that is inside of them. I projected on the Stuttgart Victory Column, which resembled a missile. It was very important because it then opened another kind of possibility of animating monuments, especially war memorials, revealing their function as symbolic war machines, major reproducers of war, you know, that perpetuate war. Explain to our listeners a little more deeply exactly what he does and how he does it to enliven these brass and bronze monuments like Queen Victoria or Abraham Lincoln. It's spooky. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I don't know of any artists, by the way, that does what he does. I mean, there are artists out there who certainly project on facades. And I've seen some artists who have projected onto statues, but I don't know of an artist who has done what he does, which is a social practice, okay? By that, I mean he works with organizations who represent communities, who are involved with communities that represent homeless people or migrants or war veterans. And so he connects with these organizations who bring the people and connect the people to his projects. And he makes them into co-creators to a large extent. So I don't know an artist that has a social practice where not only is he projecting onto monuments, but he's connecting with the people, working one-on-one with these people that are often marginalized or don't have a voice in society. And he gives them a way to speak about their plights, to speak about their situations and their experiences that, frankly, people just don't want to hear because people are so involved in their own lives. But he finds a way after he videotapes them and records them, he edits all the people together and kind of makes like a collective voice projected onto the monuments and animates the monuments so that their voices are coming through, for example, Lincoln, war veterans speaking about the atrocities of war, their experiences of war, the dehumanization of war through Lincoln. All of a sudden, Lincoln becomes now this historical figure. We look at him in such a different way. 
Whereas before we may walk by the statue and just look at it as this statue of this figure in the past that we don't really think about. The other element to his work, which is very important, is the place. He's not choosing buildings and facades or monuments at random. He's not choosing them because he thinks that these were crafted beautifully and so I need to make art upon art. No, he is choosing these objects, these facades, these monuments, because they have historical implications. And he's working with these places, such as Union Square, where the Lincoln projection was, for example. Union Square is known as a site of protest. When the Iraqi war was about to happen and people were protesting, that's where they went, to Union Square, to protest. When there's police brutality, when the Floyd murder happened, this is where the people in New York gather historically to protest. And so he is transforming the public space as well as the monument. And we can think of public spaces like a mise-en-scene by the time he brings his projectors and starts to animate, and then the crowd gathers around this happening. And all of a sudden, the public space is no longer just a space that you're walking through. I mean, he's literally taking it over and transforming it into a place where it's democracy. The meaning of democracy is happening right before your eyes. People are speaking freely about their experiences that are as a a result of the choices that our governments make on our behalf, in our name. Wars are not just done, they're done in our names. And so to me, it made sense that these people are telling us the truth, their experiences of war and what it means to them. Speaking about veterans, speaking about their moral wounds as well as immigrants. Revolutionary artist Dred Scott says early on in your film. My first encounter with his work, it was just like as a young artist looking for older artists who had done what I was trying to figure out how to do. Christoph is radical, he's badass. (laughs) In the mid-80s, Wadishko had projected a swastika on the the South African Council, which I thought was amazing. South Africa was a a racist country, and the anti-apartheid movement was big in the world, actually, but particularly across the the U.S. Most artists didn't learn about artists who were doing intervention in public space. The fact that art didn't have to ask permission, that it didn't have to be in a, a refined space, that was phenomenal, that the ordinary public could just see it. An intervention is art that interrupts the everyday in such a way that it makes people have to rethink their situation. And I think it goes back to this concept of the avant-garde to merge art with life. In order to do that, you have to take art off the wall and put it in the street. And Khrushchev's art and his vision is deeply radical in the sense that it digs into the roots of our current human culture that perpetuates war. And there is seemingly nothing too huge or celebrated that he doesn't examine, criticize, and utilize in his critique, such as the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And the visuals, Maria, that you offer us, along with his commentary, 
really do allow us to see these things with a necessary new vision. Culture of war and culture in general of any nation is perpetuating a certain number of shortcuts, cliches, and narratives that help people to join the war. We romanticize the war, and those monuments are very much part of this process of telling us the things that romantic vision of war, the kind of sense of mission and lofty kind of sacrifice that the war offers. It's being reproduced, replicated silently through those war memorials. Arga Triumph, the biggest uh, symbolic war machine in Europe. It's amazing how many people are visiting it with children and families from uh, all over Europe, all over the world, in the middle of European Union. It's a kind of contradiction in some ways. The whole narrative of the monument is about that peace can only be achieved through war. You know, there's a whole sequence of sculptures that show from departure to peace. But, you know, that peace was obtained at the expense of an incredible amount of dead people. Napoleonic Wars provided pretty much of a model for other wars, even more bloody. So would you tell us about Christoph's ARC project, which art historian and critic Rosalind Deutsch said, It could easily be classified as visionary architecture, and yet Christoph says that it is meant to be built. First of all, I want to say I'm so grateful that Dred Scott participated in the interview. He was very much inspired by Christoph, and that's how our conversation began and I think he like really adds a lot to the film as well as others and and especially Rosalind Deutsch who has been writing about Christoph for decades since the the mid 1980s the Arc de Triomphe is a way I think uh well first of all it's I have to say it's a proposal I often refer to it as a project, but it is a proposal. It hasn't happened, but this is a spoiler. (laughs) We don't know that in the film until more like closer towards the end. But we can guess that from what Christoph tells us about war from his perspective, which I think is pretty much on the money, is that we're really not anywhere ready for this project to have happened. He basically wants to build a fortress-like structure around the Arc de Triomphe, which is the monument to war. And he envisions this structure to work like an institution. In fact, he calls the project the World Institute for the Abolition of War. And the way he envisions this would work is tourists who come from all over the world, I think there's like a million people that come annually to visit the Arc de Triomphe, would not only come, but he would invite scientists, social scientists, philosophers, activists, and politicians, and all kinds of people and tourists to partake in this investigation into how can war end, what we can do, study how wars begin, and study how certain wars have ended, and make it basically a site for peace activism, a site to abolish war. 
the brilliance in the project is that it's really meant to transform our war consciousness. That's, to me, the brilliance in the project. And we don't have that today in society. We don't really have tools that transform our war consciousness. In fact, we have an abundance of tools that do the opposite. There's so much. We have such a gun culture. And our gun culture in America, for example, is not just a gun culture. It's a military rifle culture is what it's become, where kids are killing other kids and the militarization of police. And we really are going the opposite way. Everything that Christoph is talking about, we're going in the way, way opposite way. And so I think it's a project that's needed. And even though I don't see it happening in his lifetime, because we really are so far away from our consciousness is so far away from what he would want to do from ending war. But I think it's important that we talk about the possibility of this. The utopian aspect of this project is what makes it brilliant, what appeals to me on the project because I think about the possibilities and the fact, like Annie Lou says, it's the impossibleness of it all, which is so true. But that's how things started. Like slavery, to end slavery was such, it was impossible. People would always say it's impossible to end it. But the idea starts with that impossibility, right? And then thinking that, yes, we can do this. There is a way. It seems impossible, but why not? Why not? Germany ended war. Japan ended war. These were cultures of war not long ago. (laughs) They were cultures of war very much embedded into war, very much the way the United States is. So I think his projects speak on such a deep psychological level, too, which is what I really like about his work, as well as the philosophical and and the ethics of it. I don't remember who says it in the film, but somebody says that he takes the notion of healing seriously, what might actually heal society. I very much appreciate, Maria Nero, that you go back To his early life in the 1960s, he came of age in the 1960s in, I guess, Warsaw, Poland. And he gets kicked out of Poland. He's just way too threatening to them. Eventually, he ends up in New York City, and he is in the the lower part of Manhattan, and he comes in contact with what we're now calling the unhoused people of Tompkins Square Park. And he creates this homeless vehicle project. And it was just wonderful. Describe for our listeners what the homeless vehicle looks like. Well, the homeless vehicle is such an interesting project. What it is, is it's it's a shopping cart, which the unhoused often use till this day to carry their belongings. But it's a shopping cart converted into a vehicle where you could sleep in. 
you could it has a compartment in the bottom where you could put your belongings in and then it expands it gets smaller it contracts and but it also expands so that a person could feasibly sleep in it and he didn't make it as a prototype to solve the homeless issue that was happening at the time, which is what they were calling it, that they were over 100,000 homeless people in the 1980s in Manhattan. During the time that he made the homeless vehicle, the mayor and all kinds of people, city officials, were trying to figure out how do we handle the, quote, homeless problem? What do we do with them? And all kinds of just the hideous kinds of solutions they were coming up with. I mean, some of them were like ridiculous, where I read once where they wanted to build rafts and put them out on rafts and across the waters. I mean, just really ridiculous. But long story short, a lot of them were sleeping in Union Square Park and in Tompkins Square Park. Christoph happened to live on the other side of the uh, Tompkins Square Park. And every day on his way to, he was teaching in Long Island at that time, he would walk across the park and see them. He couldn't help but see them. And I think for someone who came from communism, who in his time, there were problems in the country where he came from, where at the time it was communist Poland. But homelessness, people were not sleeping on the street. You had food shortages, but you didn't have people sleeping on on the streets in Poland. That just didn't happen. So I think for him, someone who was thrown out of his country probably must have felt really so moved by seeing this. This is the way I see it in having got to know him and his life story. And so he made this vehicle not as a prototype to solve the problem, but as a way to bring attention to the problem and say, this is what it's come to, to design. This is a design for a problem that should not exist. And so it's really to make an example out of the situation. That's the brilliant part of it all. This is the beginning of Christoph's interrogative design. Shortly after this, maybe a year or two later, he had written what's sort of like a manifesto, if you will, called interrogative design. It's very well known among designers, especially architects, architecture and design world, which is all about how to address issues using design to address social issues. So that's, I just thought I'd mention that to you because this is, he's known for this. And he would later go to MIT and start the interrogative design program and teach there for almost a decade, making interrogative design works. Well, Maria Nero, we're just about out of time. Final words for our listeners. I hope you will see The Art of Unwar if you can't catch it at the Mendocino Festival June 1st through the 4th. And you're an educator, you can rent it on New Day Films, which is newday.com. And also it will soon be available to rent through different outlets. And you can go to 
www.un-war.com, unwar.com, and get more information. Will you be attending the festival, Maria? Unfortunately, I can't make it. As much as I wanted to come back to California, I'm not going to be able to make it, sadly. Your work speaks for itself, and I again thank you very much for creating this magnificent film, The Art of Unwar, Krzysztof Wodyszko. Maria Nero, thank you so much for being our guest on Radio Goes to the Movies. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that you liked the film and had me as a guest. You have just heard an interview with Maria Nero, whose film, The Art of Unwar, Christoph Wudischko, will be screening on Friday, June 2nd at 4 p.m. at the Matheson. In our first segment, we spoke with Alan Snithow and Deborah Kaufman about their film, Town Destroyer, which will also be screening on June 2nd at 1 p.m. at the Coast Cinemas. You can find out more at mendocinofilms.org. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Folks, while I have your ears... KZYX is in our silent fundraising drive. It's a great time for you to get ahead of our on-air pledge drive, which is beginning on May 19th and running till May 29th. Any funds you contribute now will go towards our goal to keep Mendocino County Public Broadcasting alive and thriving. Listener-supported community radio is a revolutionary model of broadcasting that appeals to only a certain kind of person who understands that as news and information outlets are going bust, it is crucial to keep our own homegrown, homemade information entertainment community connections together. So please, go to kzyx.org and click on the Support KZYX button. There, you'll find lots of ways to contribute. Thanks for listening and for supporting our community radio station, KZYXNZ. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now.